Welcome to Business Lens, the broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined as always by Chris Hill, the host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America, a daily podcast. Yeah, daily, folks. There's that much going on in the world, and Chris Hill and the Motley Fool Money team cover it all. Soup to nuts. How are you doing there, Chris? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I, w- I would like the weather to be warmer, but I understand uh, that seasons have to happen. All right. Let me, let, me, let me rephrase and generalize the question. How are we doing? And by we, I mean, you know, the whole market. Like, okay? Terrible? Like, what's going on? Somewhere in between. You know, it would be nice if there was greater clarity. It's always nice when you can be definitive. I think we're in um, uh, one of those points in time with the market where, um, look, the market can always go lower. Your stocks can always go lower. But I think we have moved out of, um, collectively as investors, we've moved out of where we were six weeks ago, where the market had started off the year in, in pretty bad form. Um, a lot of stocks, even though they had come down a decent amount in the last few months of 2021, some of those stocks were falling further and there was a decent amount of fear in the market. And I think we've, we've moved out of that. We've had a couple of good weeks in a row for the, for the overall market. But I and a lot of the investors I know are increasingly focused on proven businesses that have demonstrated they can be profitable and they have a plan for growth. And we're sort of moving to the back burner, if you will, companies that are unprofitable. Maybe they have a bright future. Some of them may be total game changers, but I know with my own personal portfolio, I'm not really looking for those type of up and coming um, unprofitable growth stocks right now. Um, I probably will at some point, but I'm looking at uh, names that everybody knows, um, profitable companies, um, even if it means a little bit less upside in the future. That's just sort of where my mind is right now. What would it take to send you back into a little bit more of a, um, let's call it a bull mode uh, and, and looking at growth stocks? Because obviously, look, we're coming off of a, a pretty good run for, for the market. Um, and you know, even even after the pandemic dip, we 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 went through an extended period of really spectacular gains. I think it was something like twenty percent during calendar twenty twenty one, and so now we've gone through a little bit of a lull, not quite a correction, but you know, certainly a a, a period of increased uncertainty. So, what kinds of signs are you going to be looking for to say, all right, maybe maybe I don't need to be in sort of the dependable profitable set of companies, now I can begin to have a roving eye towards some of those more growth bets. I think if you look at what companies are saying right now, as some of them continue to come out with their earnings reports, um, they're talking about no one big single challenge. A lot of companies are saying, well, there's a lot going on. We're dealing with inflation. We're dealing with supply chain problems that aren't as bad as they were a year ago, but they're still not where we would like them to be. There's the uncertainty around Russia and Ukraine. Um, so I, I, I'm sort of looking, as I think a lot of businesses are looking, for 
all of those things to improve. Um, certainly an end to the conflict in Ukraine would be great. I think the Federal Reserve has signaled pretty clearly that more interest rates are coming. So no one should be surprised when that happens. But I do think that um, a few months from now, when a couple more rate hikes have happened, I think um, everyone will feel a little bit more settled. So part of it um, just has to do with time. I think uh, uh, we're a few months away, uh, and I'll just speak for myself, I'm a few months away from feeling like, okay, I have a better handle on everything. You can get any number of um, opinions on inflation and where it's going to be in a few months. Um, and some of these things are tied together, particularly with the price of oil and the price of gas. So I, I think in time, um, it, you know, wouldn't surprise me if um, I'm looking more towards growth stocks uh, in three months. It also wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't until the fall. Got it. So it's not so much that you're looking for something to smack you in the face as it is. You're just looking for an overall gestalt, like a feel. And, you know, actually speaking of getting smacked in the face, I, you know, we would be only the latest media commentators to touch on the slap at the Academy Awards. We don't necessarily need to go down that road unless that's where you want to go. But you did mention to me off air that there's, there's something even more interesting going on under the surface coming out of the Academy Awards, at least from an investing standpoint, that has to do with streaming companies. And obviously, that's a sector that we like to talk about a lot on this show. So what did you have in mind? Obviously, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock overshadowed um, a lot of things at the Academy Awards, uh, a lot of the good performances and a lot of the award winners. From an investing standpoint, it overshadowed the fact that Apple, not Netflix, not anyone else, Apple became the first streaming company to take home the biggest prize of the night, best picture. And I think this pretty significantly alters the streaming landscape in a few different ways. First of all, the folks at Netflix have just got to be salty as you can get because Netflix is the company that changed the way Academy Awards uh, nominees were eligible. They did the legwork for years. It wasn't Apple. It wasn't anyone else. It was Netflix persistently going to the Academy and saying, streaming companies should be eligible for these awards, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that they are. Um, the fact that Apple slipped in uh, a year, two years after, the, less than two years after they launched their streaming service and they win Best Picture, uh, that's just, um, that's got to be a salt in the wound. I think it signals a pretty significant escalation of spending for all of these companies. And look, the cost of content for Disney+, Plus, Paramount, uh, Hulu, Apple, Netflix, it was going up anyway, collectively. I think Apple winning Best Picture for Coda, which is a great, great movie and uh, highly recommend. But I, I think this gives a steroid injection to the amount of money that companies are going to be spending, including, by the way, Apple. Now, Apple has the money to do that, but they bought Coda um, a little over a year ago out of the Sundance Film Festival for $25 million. Later in 2021, Apple spent five times that amount of money to buy the rights to a film 
that is coming later this year. Uh, it's, it's called Emancipation. It's directed by Antoine Fuqua and it stars, wait for it, Will Smith. So it all comes back to Will Smith. But I, in, in all seriousness, I think that if you are any of these streaming companies, you're looking at what, what Apple did and saying, okay, how can we um, better acquire content? Even though a lot of these businesses are doing a great job already, um, but I think it just really ups the ante and the, the you know financial arms race. Well, I I have to wonder a little bit about how this is viewed from two other closely entwined businesses, the studios, like the legacy studios and the movie theater chains. Because initially when Netflix was leading the charge, into so much content creation. I mean, there was a joke on South Park for a while that it was like, you'd call up and they'd answer at Netflix. And they'd say, this is Netflix. Your project is green lighted. How can I help you? So <laughs> like they were really looking for a lot of content for a while. And, and so it seems like the first hurdle that the streamers were trying to overcome was just this bar of quality. You are going to get the same quality of content that you would get going to a theater if you have something that's a release on a streamer. And I think that's clearly been true for a long time now. They've, they've, they've kind of gotten over that bar and you saw how many of the best picture nominated pictures were in dual release on a streamer um, or, you know, in the case of Coda, what, you know, was an Apple project. And so what's sort of the, <laughs> what's sort of the remaining legacy company business case at this point? What it, why would, why would people go to movie theaters? Is it now all about, hey, well, you need to go see this in IMAX? I mean, is this, is there sort of a larger meaning for those related businesses coming out of this best picture win? I think part of the case for films being in theaters has to do with the economic system by which, in particular, movie stars themselves have gotten compensated. Uh, it was all about box office receipts. Uh, there have been stories recently about Tom Cruise fighting against uh, film studios who want to move his movies, the, the next uh, couple of Mission Impossible movies, to streaming services more quickly rather than sort of the traditional uh, window where they would only be available in theaters. Uh, you look at a, a classic movie like Saving Private Ryan and all of the star power with that movie, Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Matt Damon, a movie like that got made because people like Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks said, you don't have to pay me a lot of money up front. I will take a percentage of the box office receipts. And that worked out for the studio that made the film. And that certainly worked out economically for Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg. But if there are no box office receipts, then that fundamentally changes how movie stars get compensated. So I think, I think that's sort of working in the favor of the movie uh, uh, theater chains themselves, um, that there's a financial incentive for these stars for the films to show up in theaters, at least for some amount of time. Right. We saw that in the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit that was ultimately resolved. And it is interesting. I did see an article emerge this week about uh, just how opaque 
the actual viewing numbers really are from a streamer like Netflix. We just don't know. And I wonder if some of these compensation issues are going to start to pry open a window into what's going on behind the scenes and how much each individual piece of content is actually driving subscription and viewership and et cetera, because those economics do eventually have to flow out into whatever emerging model we're going to get for compensation throughout the industry. And that favors a, a, a business like Apple. Um, because if you're paying up front, if you're saying, look, there are no box office receipts, we're not going to give you a percentage of anything. We are, however, going to give you this enormous check up front. Um, companies that have the deep pockets, they can do that. I, I think it will be interesting to see if some of these services um, start pulling different economic levers. If you think about a business like Amazon Prime, um, they have their subscription service, but they also have the ability. You don't have to be a Prime member to watch movies on Prime. Mm. You can rent them for $4 at a pop, that sort of thing. So Amazon has the ability to go to someone and say, look, we will um, work out a system where we're giving you some money up front, but we're also going to give you maybe a percentage of the people who just decide to rent or buy this film as opposed to um, sharing the data because none of them want to share the data. Netflix, Apple, Amazon, none of them want to share the, the proprietary data they have on who's watching what and for how long. Mm. You know, this is a topic that's very rich and we're going to have to dive more into it. I, I'd like to understand more about sort of the data, the propriety of the data and, you know, kind of what their internal business model thinking is behind that. But I do want to move on to another traditional business that's been disrupted by one of these up and comer, you know, uh, technology enabled uh, marauders, which is taxi services and Uber. And it's interesting because you brought to my attention that obviously the idea behind Uber is, you know, taxis, that's a scam. That's like so 20th century, how we're going to do that. We can come in, we could do it for less. There's apps, you know, we can get people to get into random people's cars. There's a lot of hilarious stories about that, by the way, of people mistaking just random cars for Ubers and like just jumping into people's cars. But now you, you pointed out to me that actually Uber is maybe not being as disruptive as we thought. They're actually partnering with taxis in New York and San Francisco. Yeah, it was one of those things that had me scratching my head saying, wait a minute, is this, is this a smart move by Uber or is this a desperate move by Uber? And the more analysts at The Motley Fool that I've spoken with, the, the more I'm, I'm starting to believe it's a smart move by them. And it, and it sort of signals Uber's aspirations. Um, because as you said, yeah, Uber started because there were a couple of uh, entrepreneurs who lived and worked in San Francisco and were frustrated by how difficult it was to hail a cab. And they thought, you should be able to do this with your phone. You should be able to do this. You know, you should be able to order this. It should be a lot simpler. Um, so on the one hand, it seems very strange that Uber would work out a deal with taxi cabs in New York City to say, you can all be on our app. But it really goes, if you think back to the Super Bowl and the commercials that Uber was running, it wasn't about ride hailing services it was about uber eats it was about delivery it was about delivering things other than food you would eat and uber really wants to be a super app they want to be a go-to app for a variety of services and building in 
the ability for people, because let's face it, if you've ever been in a big city trying to get a ride from point A to point B, you almost don't care what it is. You don't care if it's a taxi or an Uber or a Lyft. As long as you're not getting ripped off and paying an arm and a leg, you just want that vehicle to pull over and pick you up as quickly as possible. And so uh, I, I think it's a smart move, but in some ways, it's also a strange move. Again, just on the surface, it's like, wait a minute, doesn't this completely go against the, the origin story for your company? And maybe it does, but it also signals where they're going. It is super interesting because it, it, it says to me that they're kind of thinking about what line of business they're in a little differently than I think I had conceived of Uber as, right? I think of it as a taxi company. And maybe what they're thinking is, well, we're really about solving the last mile, right? We're, we're trying to solve, there's a broad set of problems that come up with getting point to point inside cities. Maybe it's a, a personal need or a business need, but maybe it's a delivery, maybe it's food, you know, maybe it's, there used to be messenger bikes. We could do that too. And it's just interesting that they're, they're sort of thinking more broadly and creatively about that end of logistics. And they're sort of agnostic about what the specific, you know, use case of it is. It's just, look, people have to get around from point to point in this hyper-localized urban environment, we can solve that problem. And speaking of thinking, you know, more broadly about sort of a, a logistics problem, you wanted to raise on this show that that's, a, that's sort of a theme this week, because in your words, an underrated visionary is stepping down. Fred Smith is stepping down as CEO of FedEx. That's a, a company that solved sort of the larger point-to-point -point logistics problem in the U.S., and did it in a very innovative way. And, and you think this is sort of an undersold story. It is because uh, Fred Smith is 77 years old. He's the founder of uh, FedEx and um, he's recognized across the board as a, a great business leader. Um, and if you're a shareholder of FedEx, you have been rewarded uh, for pretty much the entire time you've been a, a FedEx shareholder. So it's a, it's a great company. It's a profitable company. It's a one that rewards shareholders. Um, what I didn't know until very recently is that Fred Smith not only created this industry, but he did it when he was in college. Um, uh, he was at Yale in the mid-1960s. He had to write an economics paper. Um, and so he wrote a paper about how goods are transported in the United States. And at the time, yeah, it was basically like you had to get a large package from one part of the United States to the other. You were doing it by truck or you were doing inside passenger airplanes. And Fred Smith um, thought that a company that carried small essential items by plane could be a more effective transporter um, than the existing options at the time. And so he writes this paper, but um, and I think anyone who's gone to college or really high school for that matter and had to write a paper can identify with, sometimes you write a paper at the last minute and you don't- Is there any other way? Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much the only way I wrote papers, certainly in college. Um, so he writes this economics paper at the last minute. And so he doesn't include any details about how you would actually run such a company. And the professor gave him a C. You know, that's what he got on his paper. But Six years after he writes this paper, he starts uh, the Federal Express Company. 
and uh, and here we are today and he, he again he's just created this entirely new industry one that has become more crowded i think if you look at fedex's stock performance over the last few years i think it reflects the growing competition certainly as um, not just traditional one-on-one competitors but also businesses like amazon start to ramp up their own transportation services but um but you know fred smith is recognized as a great business leader i don't think he gets enough credit as a visionary as uh, some others have it is interesting to me that well first of all i'll just point out for anyone who's never seen this meme online that there is an arrow hidden inside the fedex logo uh in between the letters super cool um you know, very clever the way they, you, you can look at it for years and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, nice visual design. But beyond that, it's interesting to me that, look, we love to talk about like streaming movies and high tech and, you know, the big phone companies, the tech companies, we, we talk about them a lot. And obviously they're the biggest market cap companies in the US and the world. So they're worth talking about, but it is interesting to me that it's come up in multiple ways on this episode today that there's still a huge, huge role in the world for companies that figure out logistics problems, how to get things to people that they want or how to get people to places that they need to go. And that connects to Uber and that connects to, to FedEx. And it just, it's interesting that that's, that's just something that never goes. I mean, one of the richest people in the world, the richest woman in China, made her money off of cardboard boxes because you need boxes in order to ship things from person to person. It's just for all the whiz bang tech stocks out there, it kind of comes back to the guidance you were giving at the top, which is, you know, there's sort of a physical economy of proven economic performers out there and they deliver no pun intended year after year. Let's let's just hit one more topic uh, before we bow out from the episode we're coming up on April. By the time people listen to this, it may already be April. It's financial literacy month. Actually, I mean, it's tax month, but it's it's also financial literacy month. What do you recommend for people who need to get a little bit more financially literate besides listening to the show? Fortunately, there are so many great free options for people who are looking to learn a little bit more, whether it's about investing, uh, buying a home, buying a car, doing your taxes. Um, There are tons of free resources online. Uh, There are calculators, different tools you can use. Um, My personal favorite uh, calculator that I've discovered recently is is one, um, it's basically a compounding calculator. And so you can plug in uh, your numbers, you can plug in a time frame, an expected rate of return or increase, and, and then click of a button and you can, you can find out wh- where you expect that amount of money to be. Um, YouTube, I think, is an underrated resource. There are a lot of great, look, there's a lot of garbage on YouTube. There's a lot of scam artists on YouTube, but there are a lot of people, if you think about Khan Academy and any parent um, knows what I'm talking about. Once your kids start getting into like higher grade level or middle school math, Khan Academy is such an amazing free resource on YouTube. And uh, it's the same for uh, financial literacy. There are just great resources online. And then if you're looking to spend a little bit of money, um, uh, I'm a big fan of books like The Big Short 
Michael Lewis's amazing book. You can watch the movie. It's a great movie, but the, the book is even better. And um, Dan Pink, who was a guest recently on Motley Fool Money, uh, one of the first books he wrote was a book called Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And mm. it's one of those books that provides insight not only into business and investing, but just sort of our own lives and, and what makes us tick as human beings. Well, and I'd also throw out that I do another show that appears in the Capital Close-Up podcast feed with a friend of mine who's a financial planner, Mike Morton. And we just did a two-part episode on apps, programs, and shortcuts that he uses or that his clients use for their own personal budgeting, financial planning, even what password manager he uses in order to be able to keep track of all the passwords you need to, to log into your various financial accounts. Um, And I would just commend that to people because it was full of lots of really easy, practical information about, you know, here's an app, here's a program, here's a tool. I mentioned those compounding interest calculators. So with that, Chris Hill, thanks so much for a great episode. Fun as always. Thanks. Thanks.